At the end of study one, we were looking at the Jerusalem Council. And you remember that their big issue that they had to sort out was all about circumcision. Do you need to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses in order to be a, a Christian? Because Paul had no end of trouble with these people called Judaizers, who had in fact dogged his steps around Galatia, uh, saying that that's what people had to do to become Christians. And that's why he wrote the epistle to the Galatians, if you remember. Well, about a year after that uh, council meeting, Paul suggested to Barnabas that they should, and I quote from Acts 15 and verse 36, they should go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That's Acts 15, 36. And so was posited the second missionary journey, which took place from AD 50 to AD 52. And we read about them in Acts 15, 36 through to Acts 18, 22. Barnabas agreed to this proposal, but Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. Now remember that John Mark went with them on the first journey, but Paul, you see, didn't think this was an awfully good idea because John Mark, as far as he was concerned, had let them down once, and who was to say he wasn't going to do it again? Look at verse 39. Just in case you think all was sweetness and light in the life of the Apostle Paul, and... Uh, particularly in his relationship with Barnabas, I quote, there was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Such a sharp disagreement, I think that's putting it quite mildly really, uh, that they parted company. Paul and Barnabas remained friends, there's no doubt of that, but Paul took Silas with him instead. And what happened was this, they divided the itinerary between them and Barnabas and John Mark they went back to cover the Cyprus leg of the journey, if you like, in the first missionary journey, whereas Paul and Silas made their way through Syria and Cilicia into Galatia and Asia. In other words, they did the Turkey leg of the first missionary journey. So, in fact, what you've got was Turkey leg. Yeah, all right, Richard, I thought that would probably amuse you. Uh, let's set the bar low. Um, so, two new missionary journeys took place uh, instead of one. Just thinking about John Mark, John Mark had clearly learned from his mistakes because he not only became a help to Barnabas, but also in time he became a help to Peter and even to Paul himself. Paul clearly forgave him, if you look at Colossians 4 and verse 10, and Paul commends John Mark as being, and I quote from 2 Timothy 4.11, helpful to me in my ministry. So, it all went well in the end. It all got sorted. John Mark learned his lessons and became somebody upon who you could depend. Now, Silas was rather a surprising choice for Paul to make. You may think, well, what? haven't I heard Silas's name somewhere before in this study? Well, yes, in the last study, he was one of the two who took the letter around the churches, the letter from the council around the churches. In fact, it said he probably wrote some of it at um, James's dictation. Because, you see, Silas was much more of a literary man, a man of letters rather than a man of action. He was not really at all an upfront person. So, from that point of view, he does seem rather a strange choice. 
And if you want more details about Silas, then you need the blue book from the desk, uh, which is Bit Part Players Act 2, in which I do a whole chapter about Silas and investigate that a bit more. It may have had something to do with the fact that Silas was a Roman citizen. You see that in Acts 16, verse 38. Um, perhaps Paul wanted Silas along to keep a record of what happened. And maybe Silas passed his notes on to Luke, and Luke then used them in the writing of the Acts of the Apostles. So there's all kind of tantalising possibilities here as to why he chose Silas. It's clear, though, from the start that Silas had a more subservient role than Barnabas had. You see, nowhere is Silas referred to as an apostle. Barnabas was referred to as an apostle. If you look at chapter 14, verse 14, but not Silas. He was never referred to in that way. Now, moving on to chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul's plan in revisiting Galatia was, first of all, to encourage, to encourage the churches that he'd established there during his first journey. <clears throat> Secondly, it was to see if they'd taken any notice at all of his letter that he'd sent round a couple of years ago in AD 48. And thirdly, to inform them of the council's decision about circumcision. I referred earlier to the problems that had been caused by these Judaizers in Galatia. We noted last week that Galatians is in fact the earliest document in the New Testament. In Lystra, Paul met Timothy and Timothy had become a highly regarded disciple and Paul was so taken with Timothy and saw such potential in him that he, and I quote from verse 3, wanted to take him along on the journey. It seems that when the leaders at Lystra laid hands on Timothy, a prophetic message was given about him, receiving a certain ministry gift from God. And uh, Paul refers to that when he writes to Timothy many years later, 1 Timothy 1.18 and 4.14. And this would have endorsed Paul's choice of Timothy to go with him. So that's how Timothy comes into the picture. Now we move into Europe, chapter 16, verse 6 through to 18, 22. Now you're just going to get a very brief outline of this because you can read this up for yourself and I know many of you know it well anyway. But here's a series of events as they occurred. In Troas, Paul had a vision of, and I quote from verse 9, a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So clearly, God was guiding them into Europe. So, and I quote from verse 10, we, notice the we comes into the narrative at that point for the first time, because Luke himself has now joined them. So Luke says, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And arriving in Macedonia, they headed for the main city of the area, 
And the main city of the area was Philippi. And you can see all that happened at Philippi in verses 11 to 40. Um, for example, how he meets uh, Lydia and the circle of women there. The exorcism of the fortune-telling slave girl and the consequences of that, where he and Silas finish up in prison and they're singing in the stocks at midnight and Silas is singing, why did I come along with Paul instead of staying at home with my books? And then, of course, there was the earthquake okay, and everything that happened as a result of that. Then in chapter 17, 1 to 9, we see what happened in, as they moved on to Thessalonica. And there was a riot there, led by the Jews. And Jason, who was their host, um, they were staying in his house, he gets imprisoned. And they move on to Berea, verses 10 to 15. And Jews from Thessalonica arrive and stir up things in Berea. Uh, and what happens next is that Silas and Timothy actually stay in Berea, but they get Paul out. And they take him, they escort him to Athens, chapter 17, 16 to 34, where, of course, we have the whole to an unknown God incident, okay, where he discusses with the philosophers and talks about the resurrection and so on. From there, he moves on to Corinth, chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. And in Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and we'll be looking very closely at them in the next study, study three, uh, because they, for me, are two such important people, support, uh, background uh, team, if you like, for Paul in his ministry. Just amazing people. Uh, that's where he meets them. And he, in fact, stayed in Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. And I quote from verse 11, teaching them the word of God. He gets abusive opposition there from some Jews. And in fact, it escalates into a, actually into a court case in Corinth uh, where he's accused of treason for preaching the gospel. Uh, you know, actually preaching against the emperor and so on. Uh, and in the end, the case is dismissed. And while he was in Corinth, he wrote the letters to the Thessalonians, both of them, in AD 51. And in these letters, he commends the Thessalonians and he deals with their concerns about the last days and Christ's return. And at the end of this evening, I'll be giving you um, a synopsis of all the letters in an outline. So you can, we haven't got time to go through it all. So you can go through it at your leisure. Um, and see what is contained in each of these letters and why. But this is when he wrote to the Thessalonians. And then in chapter 18, verses 18 to 22, we see that he arrives in Ephesus, uh, in this port en route to Antioch via Jerusalem. And he took Priscilla and Aquila with him, but he left them in Ephesus to disciple the young converts in the new church that he was establishing there. So that, if you like, is a quick overview of the second missionary journey, AD 50 to 52. Now, when we move down to verse 23 of chapter 18, we begin on the third missionary journey, which took place between 53 and 57 AD. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And you can see that in Acts 18, 23 through to Acts 21 and verse 17. So Paul goes back to Antioch and he has a bit of R&R there for a little while. Spent some months in Antioch before he set off on what's called his third missionary journey. Seemingly on his own this time. Doesn't have a companion, he just goes. He had one particular main purpose in mind when he left and that was to go back to Ephesus. That was his purpose as he set off on that journey to go to Ephesus. And he'd spend two and a half years in that city. To get to Ephesus, he retraced the route of his second journey, passing through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch in Pisidia, all the ones he'd already retraced his steps from on the second journey. So he goes back that way again to see how they're all getting on. And in the words of verse 23, encouraging and, quote, strengthening all the disciples. During Paul's absence from Ephesus, a rather important character has arrived there and he was called Apollos and he was a Jew. Verse 25 tells us that he was a naturally gifted public speaker, but, quote, he knew only the baptism of John. And this is where Priscilla and Aquila play a very important role here, as we'll be seeing in study three, because they took Apollos under their wing and, quote, explained to him the way of God more adequately. The result was that Apollos went on to preach in Achaia, which is in a region of Greece, and Apollos was mightily used by God, and in fact, he finished up in Corinth. By the time Paul arrived in Ephesus, chapter 19 of Acts, Apollos was in Corinth. And Paul spent three months in Ephesus, speaking in the synagogue, and I quote from verse 8, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. There's this interesting incident here. Well, there's many interesting incidents in Ephesus, as you may recall. One of them was where the sons of Siva tried to copy Paul when performing an exorcism. They decide they'll perform an exorcism, and it's quite hilarious, really, to read what happened, but it always makes me smile. Uh, down in verses 15 to 16, they try to exorcise this guy and the spirit in the man said, and I quote, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then, quote, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I shouldn't laugh really, because it's not really funny, but it's just this picture. This guy, you know, these guys thinking that they could just, you know, perform exorcism just like Paul did. But and not understanding the situation at all. But there was a, a lovely sort of knock-on from that, which you see in verse 19, where it says, quote, a number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So there was a bonfire in Ephesus of all this occult material. And if you're thinking, yeah, there's something else happening in Ephesus, wasn't there? You're right, it's the silversmith's riot. 
Uh, and this was led by a guy called Demetrius, who was like the trade union leader, I suppose you would say. And this is where, verse 28, they spent, they all gathered together and they're so irate at what Paul's doing and how it's affecting their trade that they stand there and scream, great is Artemis, or Diana, of the Ephesians, verse 28, for two hours. And in the end, the city clerk has to come and try and calm everybody down. And he does it by saying that, you know, you need to go home uh, and quietly because there'll be repercussions from the Romans if you don't disperse peacefully. And with that, and I quote from verse 28, he dismissed the assembly. Oh, that's all in Ephesus. Towards the end of his stay in Ephesus, sometime during AD 55, Paul heard disturbing reports from Corinth which he tackled in two letters to them, both written from Ephesus. So he wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus. In fact, what we have as 1 Corinthians was in fact the second of these. And this is really going to do your head in here. What we have as 1 Corinthians was in fact the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. And he refers to the first letter he'd written in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 8. Volume, but, um, 9 to 11, I beg your pardon. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11, he refers to this letter that he's already sent to them, which we have no record of. But he refers to it in those particular verses. And it gets more complicated when we get on later. Into chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, Timothy arrived in Corinth from Ephesus between the writing of the letters. That's the letters that we know as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And he, found, he soon found out that little attention had been paid to Paul's advice in what we call 1 Corinthians. The situation in the church had worsened there, Timothy found, to the extent that he found it too hot to handle. And he let Paul know accordingly. It seems that Paul may have then sent Titus to support Timothy in Corinth and to report back to Paul in Troas about what was actually happening in Corinth. And that's based on what he writes in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Apparently, Paul had decided that the relative calm after the silversmith's riot was a good time for him to actually leave Ephesus. So he got the disciples together and he encouraged them before departing. Now, the order of events after Paul left Ephesus isn't easy to piece together, to be honest, into a coherent whole. So there's a bit of guesswork going on here, but more, it's more probability that Paul's original plan seems to have been to go from Ephesus to Corinth and then into Macedonia, returning a second time to Corinth, and I'm quoting from 2 Corinthians 1.15, so that you might benefit twice. In other you're going to visit them twice. So that seems to have been the plan. But in fact, what happened was this, that Paul went from Ephesus up the coast of Turkey to Troas. And when he got there, he actually had an opportunity to preach the gospel there. So, of course, he took that opportunity, but he was still restlessly awaiting the arrival of Titus with his update from Corinth. So he had part of his mind on what was going on in Corinth and waiting for the Titus to come back with news uh, confirming what Timothy had told him 
and just to see what was the, the, the situation there. And when Titus didn't actually appear in Troas, Paul sailed over to Macedonia, sort of area in northern Greece, if you like, and probably went to Philippi, hoping to meet up with Titus there. Now, whether Titus did arrive bringing bad news or whether Paul decided to wait no longer isn't clear. But certainly, Paul arrived in Corinth eventually and he met up with Timothy. This particular visit of Paul to Corinth resulted, appears to have resulted in a confrontation between Paul and certain groups in the church because when Paul wrote to Corinthians, he says that he has made up his mind not to pay, quote, another painful visit to you. That's 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1. So he's clearly referring to this visit where there was a lot of problems and there was a confrontation. It appears that Paul left Corinth after a short while to this confrontation and went to Macedonia. But no sooner had he done so than a group of itinerant, self-styled apostles arrived in Corinth with letters of commendation. And we'll be looking at that in much more detail when we get to study four. They made the situation even worse in Corinth by belittling Paul, by challenging Paul's credentials as an apostle and by implication challenging what he was teaching. And you can see that referred to in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 5, 10 verse 10 and 11 verses 13 to 15. And Paul heard about this while he was in Macedonia. News of this, of the arrival of these apostles, so-called self-styled apostles and what they were doing, got to him when he was in Macedonia. And he was so distressed that it seems he wrote a short letter to the Corinthians, which was his third letter to them, which we don't have either, that's been lost, assuring them that in spite of all the hard words that have been exchanged on these visit between them, he did love them all deeply. And he called them to be obedient in all things. And he called for those who opposed him to be dealt with. And you can see that going on in his, what we call 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 9, and chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. It was Titus who delivered that third letter to the Corinthians. And when he delivered it and then came back to Paul, he was able to report back that he had been well received and assured Paul that the problems were being sorted out in Corinth. And Titus also told Paul, and he records this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 7, he told Paul of the, quote, longing and ardent concern of the Corinthians for Paul, and of the, quote, deep sorrow that they had expressed for the grief that they had caused him. Well, while the situation in Corinth was being fully resolved, Paul delayed his planned third visit because he didn't want to avoid any further confrontation. It seemed things were getting sorted out in Corinth, so he was probably best to stay back and wait for an opportune moment to go to Corinth again. So that's exactly what he did. And while he was there in Macedonia, he wrote a fourth letter to them instead, which we now know as... 2 Corinthians and that was delivered by good old trustworthy Titus. So in fact 
there were four letters to the Corinthians. One Corinthians is in fact two Corinthians, and two Corinthians is in fact four Corinthians. The heart's perfectly clear, isn't it? <laughs> it's just that we don't have the original one Corinthians and three Corinthians. That's why they're logged as one. But it weren't, they weren't the only letters that he wrote. It's clear from what he says in the one and two Corinthians we do have that there were other letters. So, that's interesting. It seems that Paul did make a third visit to Corinth at some point after writing 2 Corinthians. Uh, and if you look at 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 13, 1. And he probably stayed at the home of Gaius, um, looking at Romans 16 and verse 1, where he refers to it. The fact that he did stay in Corinth for three years, Acts 20 and verse 3, suggests that all the problems which had plagued the church and caused Paul such distress had indeed been resolved. And it's during this three years that he was in Corinth that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in AD 57. And Timothy was with him when he did so. See Romans 16, 21. Now Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, first of all, to prepare the way, to prepare the way for his coming visit to Rome, which he longed to make, and he refers to it in Romans 1, 11 to 12, 15, 23 to 24, and also it appears in Acts 19, 21. And also he wrote to the Romans to gain support for his proposed mission to Spain. And he refers to that in chapter 1, 10 to 15, and chapter 15, 22 to 29. Paul couldn't go to Rome just yet because he was keen to deliver the money collected by the Gentile churches to support the poor of the church in Jerusalem personally. He wanted to do that himself before he had any thoughts of going to Rome. You can see Acts 15, verses 25 to 27. Into chapter 20 of Acts, verses 3 to 12. Just as Paul was about to set sail from Cancrea, which was the port that served Corinth, to Syria en route to Jerusalem to do this, to take this money with him, a Jewish plot against him was discovered. So he decided to go back through Macedonia. It seems that Paul met up with Luke in Philippi and they joined with the rest of the party, including Timothy, in Troas, where they stayed for a week. And on their final night there, Paul met with the church he'd established in Troas on his previous visit and they broke bread together. As this, was, as this would be the last time he'd be seeing them, Paul spoke at length, talking until midnight, and this is where you get the whole thing with Eutychus that everybody knows about, who fell asleep and fell out the window, if you remember, and everything else. That's where that fits in. But Paul decided not to visit Ephesus on the way because he wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. However, when he arrived at the port of Miletus, he sent for the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet with him there. 
and he, he talks to the Ephesian elders um, at some length that you can see in those bids them farewell. You can see it in verses 13 to 38 of Acts 20. Landing at Tyre, they spent a week there with the local believers and then they moved on to Caesarea where they met somebody who he'd previously met in Antioch some 15 years earlier. And that was Agabus. Remember Agabus from Study 1? And when they'd first met, and you can read that back in Acts 11, 27 to 29, Agabus had correctly prophesied the coming famine in Jerusalem. And Paul was taking a gift with him to help concerning that famine. Now this time, however, Agabus had a personal prophecy. A personal prophecy for Paul. He prophesied Paul's forthcoming imprisonment in rather dramatic fashion. And you can see it there in Acts 21 and verse 11. And I quote, He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. End of quote. So he prophesies Paul's, Paul's forthcoming imprisonment. And then Paul arrives in Jerusalem. So then Paul arrives in Jerusalem and there he gives a detailed report to James and the elders about what God had done through his ministry among the Gentiles. And this whole section uh, I've entitled From Jerusalem to Rome and you can read about it in Acts 21, 17 through to 28, 31 and the years involved here, AD 57 when he arrives in Jerusalem through to AD 62. So he gives this detailed report and a week later some Jews from Asia or what we would call what we call today West Turkey were visiting Jerusalem and they saw Paul at the temple. Now they knew how effective Paul's preaching of the gospel had been in their part of the world and they wanted to discredit him. So they started shouting shouting that Paul not only spoke against the Jews and the law, but had defiled the temple by taking a Gentile, who was in fact probably Trophimus, into the inner courts where Gentiles were forbidden to go. That was the accusation again that they made against Paul. And this caused a riot, during which Paul was seized and he was dragged from the temple and he was beaten. The Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, Lysias, who we met in study one, he arrived with his troops in the nick of time and he quelled the riot and he arrested Paul. But the crowd continued to shout, to shout accusations about Paul and became so violent that Paul had to be carried up the steps of the barracks by the soldiers. At that point, Paul asked the commander for permission to speak to the crowd and that was granted and Paul proceeded to give his testimony of how his encounter with the risen Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus changed him 
from persecutor to preacher. The crowd, as you can imagine, were not at all impressed and began, and I quote from chapter 22, verses 22 to 23, quote, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, shouting, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. So you can see the strength of feeling among these Jews against Paul. Uh, Well, when that started happening, the commander decided that that was quite enough of that, thank you, and he had Paul taken inside into the safety of the barracks. Looking at verse 24, chapter 22, he ordered Paul to be, quote, flogged and questioned to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And it was as they prepared to flog him that Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen. And of course, this deeply troubled the commander because he could be severely punished for his treatment of Paul. Because a Roman citizen, you see, could not be punished until he'd been found guilty. Not the other way around, not flogged to try and get him to confess, but, you know, he could only be flogged when he'd been found guilty. And yet here was the commander flogging Paul or about to flog him. And another thing that we picked up in study one, if you remember, that Paul's citizenship by birth, the fact that he was born in Tarsus, if you remember, we talked about that, was regarded as superior to that of the commanders which had been bought. There are various ways you could get Roman citizenship, we looked at in study one. But having it being born a Roman citizen, ranked above buying Roman citizenship. And you can see that back in, um, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 21 and verse 28. Well, moving on to verse 30 and through to 23 verse 11. The next day, the commander ordered the Jewish council, that's the Sanhedrin, to convene because he wanted to find out exactly what Paul was being accused of by the Jews. Well, To say the hearing did not begin well is a bit of an understatement because right from the off, Paul has a run-in with Ananias. Ananias was the high priest and Paul didn't exactly endear himself to Ananias by calling him, look at verse 3 and I quote, a whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall, that's a good way to start your defence, isn't it? In other words, he's accusing him of being a hypocrite, that's what it means. Uh, Paul was cute, you know, he was, he, was, he was canny. And he exploited the fact that the Sanhedrin was composed of both Pharisees on the one hand, and remember Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees on the other hand. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Here's a, another joke from, for Turkey Leg Richard. Uh, that's why they were sad, you see. <coughs> Moving on. And so Paul made out that he was a Pharisee who'd been put on trial for his belief in the resurrection of the dead. So, of course, this led to uproar and turmoil in the chamber as the Pharisees, look at verse 9, quote, argued vigorously in favour of their fellow Pharisee, Paul. And so violent did the dispute between the two camps become 
the commander became so afraid, quote, afraid, Paul would be torn into pieces by them. Verse 10. So afraid that that would happen that he removed Paul from the scene. Well, the Lord appeared to Paul the following night saying, look at verse 11, quote, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And this suggests, suggests that Paul's trials in Jerusalem may have been a means of getting him to Rome. And now he has various trials which we can see from Acts 23.12 through to 26.32. A Jewish plot against Paul was discovered by Paul's nephew, actually. And that meant that Paul was transferred to Caesarea from Jerusalem under heavily armed Roman escort. And there in Caesarea, he was tried by Felix, followed by his replacement Festus, who got Agrippa involved. And Paul shared his testimony with them all. But in the end, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to be tried before Caesar in Rome. And in private, if you look at verse 31, in private uh, it was agreed that Paul had, quote, done nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa even confided to Festus, verse 32, quote, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But Paul used his right as a Roman citizen to do that. There's been a lot of speculation was, would he have ever gone to Rome if he hadn't appealed and all this sort of thing. Irrelevant, he appealed and he went. And so in verses, uh, chapters 27 through to 28, we track his route to Rome and what happened there. Well, as we all know, uh, they were shipwrecked on the voyage and they landed on Malta. And Paul performs various miracles there on Malta. And then they leave Malta and set sail for Rome. And many people came to meet and welcome Paul along the route. And on arrival in Rome, Paul was put under house arrest, guarded by a soldier. And Paul meets with the leaders of the Jews in Rome. And looking at verse 22 of chapter 28, they asked Paul to tell them more about his beliefs. Quote, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. See, that was how the Jews regarded what we call Christianity, the followers of the way, if you want to think of it like that, that it was a sect of Judaism, a pernicious sect which needed to be rooted out, as of course had been Paul's own belief before his encounter on the road to Damascus. Well, verse 24 tells us, quote, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Verse 28, Paul's parting shot 
to those Jews who did not accept his message was that, quote, God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. In other words, if you're hard of hearing, the Gentiles won't be. If you're resistant to the gospel, uh, the Gentiles will not be. They will welcome it and open their hearts to it. Verse 30 tells us that Paul was under house arrest, notice and I quote, in his own rented house, unquote, for two years. While the legal requirements for his final trial were being put together. And during that time, verse 31, quote, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it seems that Luke stayed in Rome with Paul because Paul refers to him in the greetings list of two of his letters that he wrote during that period of house arrest, speaking of him as, Colossians 4.14, quote, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and also naming him as one of his fellow workers. Uh, you can see that in Philemon and verse 24. Timothy was also a frequent visitor to Paul in Rome. Uh, look at Philippians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, and the first verse of Philemon. <coughs> Excuse me. Other visitors included Tychicus, see Ephesians 6.21, Epaphroditus, see Philippians 4.18, and Mark, see Colossians 4 and verse 10. And throughout this time, Paul took every opportunity to speak about Christ. Even the palace guard knew what he stood for. Look at Philippians 1 and verse 13. Paul was involved with the believers in the church in Rome, encouraging them and supporting them. And during this time of house arrest, Paul wrote the epistles which are often called the prison letters. And these letters are, namely, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians and Philippians. Now, they were the only epistles that he wrote in this time of imprisonment. As we've seen, he didn't write a lot of his epistles. Lots of people think he wrote all these epistles from prison. Well, completely wrong. All right, we've seen the different situations that led up to him writing his letters. Uh, the epistle to Philemon doesn't actually occur much in the themes that I will be doing as this study series progresses. So I will be looking at Philemon in our next study, study three, and the circumstances against which that was written and what it says. And these are all on the synopses of letters outlines I'll be giving to you at the end. So now what? Well, we come to the final years, which is of Paul's life which was AD 62 through to 67 or 68. Nobody's quite sure. It seems likely that after two years, the case against Paul was just dropped. The evidence of the pastoral letters, that's Tim, uh, the letters to Timothy and Titus, suggests that Paul was a free man from AD 62 through to AD 67. 
Now, according to early Christian writings, Paul achieved his long-standing ambition to visit Spain, where it's thought he began his final missionary journey after his release in AD 62. Now, Paul's actual itinerary during these years is uncertain, but it was probably as follows. Spain, for up to two years, so that's 62 to 64 AD, then to Crete in AD 64, where he worked with Titus for a short while, preaching the gospel. And in fact, Paul left Titus there in Crete to disciple the converts and to, quote, straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. And you can see that in his letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 5, 2, 15, and 3, 12 to 13. Now, Titus had been very useful to Paul down the years, notably at Ephesus and at Corinth, and he was a man to whom Paul could entrust difficult tasks. Although he's never actually named in the Acts of the Apostles, interestingly, Titus is mentioned 13 times in the rest of the New Testament. And when he was eventually replaced in Crete, it seems that Titus met up with Paul in Nicopolis. See Titus chapter 3 and verse 12. The last mention we have of Titus is on a mission to Dalmatia. And you can see that reference in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. After his time in Crete with Titus, Paul then apparently moved on to visit Miletus in AD 65, see 2 Timothy 4.20, Colossae in AD 66, see Philemon verse 22, and Ephesus later that same year. And Paul left Timothy in Ephesus instructing him to look after the church while he went on to Philippi in Macedonia. See 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. Timothy, remember he met him in Lystra and took him with him. Timothy had become one of Paul's closest friends. They'd been through a lot together. He was involved in the whole Corinthians, Corinthian church uh, turmoil and furore, if you remember, and no doubt had experienced the whole gamut of emotions together that you get in the work of God. And by now, Paul was confident enough in his youthful companion to leave him in charge of overseeing the growing church in Ephesus. And it was when Paul realised that he might not be returning to Ephesus that he wrote the first of his two personal letters to Timothy from Philippi. So he was in Philippi when he wrote 1 Timothy, giving him advice, instructions, warnings, comfort and help. The second of his epistles to Timothy was written from Paul's prison cell in Rome during his second term of imprisonment, which we'll come on to in a moment. Well, Timothy himself seems to have been a prisoner as well at some point in his life, but no one knows where. And although he was released, we do know that, you can see that in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 23, there is no record of what happened to Timothy in the end. Now remember, Timothy was not, was not an apostle. 
but he was delegated by Paul to carry out special work on his behalf and under his supervision. Paul also wrote his letter to Titus while he was in Philippi. These pastoral letters, as they're called, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written in AD 66 to 67, they're given this title because they address issues concerning the pastoral care of churches. They were written to advise and instruct Timothy, who was in charge of the church in Ephesus, and Titus, who was pastoring the believers in Crete. And the main themes of these letters are the Saviour, the appearing of Jesus, sound doctrine, faith and teaching, godliness, controversies and false teaching, trustworthy sayings and pastoral instructions. And each of these letters has its own distinctive elements that you'll see in the synopsis. Well, it seems that Paul was in Nicopolis during 66 and 67 and then moved on to Rome later in AD 67. According to tradition, when Nero became emperor, Paul was arrested again. And when he wrote his final letter, and his final letter was to Timothy, and he wrote it, when he wrote that from Rome, Paul was enduring a far more difficult imprisonment than his fairly free and easy house arrest that's spoken of in Acts. Paul was probably kept in the Mamertine prison. The uh, Mamertine prison consisted of a vast network of dungeons under, of all things, the city's main sewer. So it can't have been a very pleasant place to be. Now, these subterranean cells were used for imprisoning criminals and political prisoners in awful, cramped conditions for a short time prior to death. That's what the Mamertine prison, it was a holding area while you were waiting to be executed, basically. Now, it could well be the Mamertine prison that Paul is referring to when he implores Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.21, quote, do your best to get here before winter. Whenever I read 2 Timothy now, knowing that the situation he wrote it in, that he was about to be executed, uh, it has a, a poignancy and a pathos about it. Um, that I think you'll find as when you read it yourselves. So this period in prison, in the Mamertine prison, in 67 AD, seems to have ended with Paul's execution. Nobody's sure whether it was in either late 67 or early 68. But tradition has it that Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Road. And that was a road into Rome several miles out of the city, that he was executed out there, beheaded, so as to avoid the crowds. If that's so, then what began so gloriously on the road to Damascus ended so ingloriously on the road to Rome. 